0: hope has always been a little bit difficult for me i know that i have hope in christ i know that it's not a wishful thinking kind of hope but it often seems very abstract and far away i find it difficult to know what it means to hope and how hope connects to my life when i feel overwhelmed depressed or anxious which for me is very often I see life's challenges you know, up close and personal. I see Jesus coming back in the distance. But how does what seems so far away connect to what feels so very present? What does it mean to live in light of our hope? This is why I love 1 Peter. Peter seems just as gripped by this question as I am. And he makes our hope in Christ really concrete. He wants us to know what it means to live out our faith in every role that we may play in life. He wants us to know how to live out our hope as everyday Christians, as citizens, as workers, and in 1 Peter 3, 1-7, our passage today, as wives and husbands. God cares a great deal about marriages and the people in them. God created both of them. He made men and women, husbands and wives in his very own image. He made marriage to be the closest picture on earth of his relationship with the people that he has redeemed. So we need to pay attention when God lays out how we should interact with each other within that picture. We need to pay attention because it's intended for our good. God is our good and loving creator. He knows what he's talking about. We need to pay attention because it's probably going to make us uncomfortable. God's design, his will, his plan, his vision for marriage was radical in the first century, and it's radical today. We need to pay attention because people have a tendency to weaponize what God intends for our good. Protection can become control. Encouragement can become nagging. Service becomes selfish. Marriage is fertile ground for the worst kinds of oppression to take place in secret. So we will walk through this passage with great care. I remember in an art class as a kid, getting frustrated trying to draw a face. I had a photo for reference right in front of me, but I just could not get the proportions right. The nose was always too small, the eyes were in the wrong place. But then my teacher told me to flip the picture upside down and my drawing turned out a hundred times better. Flipping it upside down helped me stop drawing what I thought that a nose or eyes or a face looked like. It forced me to really take notice of the shapes that made up the face that I was drawing and how they related to all of the other shapes. In a similar way, it will be helpful for us not to just go straight through this passage. It's a difficult set of verses. It's easy for us to distort certain phrases or get zoomed in on them so that we neglect to see how they relate to the whole. So we'll start by looking at Peter's overarching desire for husbands and wives in this passage. Then we'll, say, then we'll see what he has to say to husbands specifically and what he has to say to wives specifically. If you are not in a relationship right now, if you're single, please don't tune out. This passage is directed husbands and wives, but it also shows us the kind of men and women that God wants all of us to be, regardless of our relationship status. Our key word for kids or teens today is courageous or godly, so you have two words. Tally up every time I say these words, and after five weeks of tallies, you'll receive a gift card from Pastor Gary. After the sermon, we'll have about 15 minutes to discuss two questions. I'm going to go ahead and give you these questions because I want you to go ahead and be thinking about them even as we walk through the passage. We're going to talk about both godly and ungodly wives and husbands. What is one way that you can be more godly in the way that you act toward your spouse, girlfriend, or boyfriend? If you're single, what is one way that you can be more godly in the way that you act toward the people that you care about the most? We're also going to talk about how we think about manliness and womanliness. In your mind, what makes a man masculine or a woman feminine? How do those things line up with God's values? So Peter wants both husbands and wives to courageously live out their hope in Christ by continuing to be godly husbands and wives even when they suffer. Peter begins his exhortations to both wives and husbands with the word likewise. He's connecting both of them back to the passage addressed to servants. So, in what way are husbands and wives like the servants that Peter was talking to before? Last week, we saw that Peter exhorted servants to continue serving well regardless of the treatment they receive. They should not return evil for evil. Instead, they are called to imitate Jesus. Jesus also suffered for doing what was right, Jesus also endured knowing that God would redeem his suffering. In Jesus' case, God did it by using his suffering to redeem us. We follow a suffering savior. We follow him in suffering for doing what is right. We follow him knowing that God will redeem our pain too. Jesus' death and resurrection served Satan his court papers. Justice is coming. Just like the servants, Peter wants husbands and wives to serve one another, regardless of the treatment that they receive. They should not return evil for evil. Instead, they are also called to imitate Jesus. This is actually what Peter wants for every believer, no matter our role in society. We see this in 1, 13 through 16, when he urges us all to set our hope fully on Jesus' return and live holy lives. He says it in 2, 11 through 12, when he exhorts us all to keep our conduct honorable, knowing that our true home is with Jesus. He'll say it again at the end of chapter three, when he tells us to always be prepared to explain the hope that motivates us to do good, no matter the response. In our passage today, Peter says it specifically to wives in verses five through six. He holds up Sarah, Abraham's wife, as an example of a holy woman who hoped in God. Peter says that if you want to follow in her footsteps, then you should do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. We will return to the idea of submission in verse five in a few minutes. What does it mean though, to not fear anything that is frightening? This is an important question. Fear is a very real emotion that we need to handle well. There are also relationships in which fear is a major component. In fact, maybe like me, your first thought on hearing this is to conclude that to even feel fear is ungodly and sinful. I do not believe that this is what Peter is saying for a few reasons. First, the only way that we would know that something is frightening is if we feel frightened. Second, God created us with all of our emotions. Emotions themselves are morally neutral. What I mean is that we can think of joy as a positive emotion, but we can feel joy at good things or bad things. We think of anger as a negative emotion, but we can feel sinful anger or righteous anger. In the same way, we think of fear as a negative emotion, but we can feel appropriate fear or inappropriate fear. Fear just tells us that we're facing something that we think is scary. It's like the pain that you feel when you touch a hot stove. Without the pain, you would not know that you need to pull away or that your finger needs ice. When we feel fear, we need to pay attention to it. Third, if you look at Scripture as a whole, especially the Psalms, we see that our response to the feeling of fear is not usually to repent, but to bring our fear to God in prayer. You could say that we are meant to pray our fear. God is not as concerned about the feeling of fear as much as he is with, about what we do with it when we feel it. Rather than condemning the feeling of fear, Peter acknowledges that we will feel it. But he doesn't want our fear to consume us or control us. We don't go looking for frightening things any more than we go looking for hot stoves to burn our hands. We're not required to remain in frightening situations any more than we would keep our hand on the hot stove. In fact, removing yourself from a fearful situation may be the good and godly response. But our fear should not keep us from doing what is good and right and godly. So what does it mean for godly husbands and wives to courageously do good? Once again, we'll look at what Peter says to husbands, and then we'll look at what Peter says to wives. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. What does it mean that Peter calls wives the weaker vessel? Scripture is full of women who have incredible moral, spiritual, even emotional strength. It would seem very odd that it would mean weakness in those areas. But men do generally have a physical advantage over women. When Peter talks about a vessel, he's talking about the physical body. Peter is acknowledging that men often use their physical advantages to intimidate and overpower their wives, to get their way, to claim a kind of superiority. Peter is putting a stop to that. His message to husbands is that your physical advantages or any other strengths that you may have are to be put to work serving your wife. You are to show honor to her, to respect her, to treat her as valuable, to lift her up. You are to live with her in a way that is understanding. Now this is not a patronizing kind of understanding. One commentator translated this as living with her according to knowledge. If you're going to understand and know your wife, you have to listen well and humbly to her thoughts and her feelings. You have to pay attention. The more that you understand her, the better that you can serve her, the way that Paul describes in Ephesians 5. He says that husbands should give up their lives for their wives. They should cherish and nourish her as they do their very own bodies. This does not mean that husbands must do whatever their wives tell them to do. It does not mean that husbands cannot confront sinful or harmful behavior in their wives but it must be done in a way that is humble and considerate that honors her that seeks to understand her this would have been radical in the first century even today some of us may have grown up in a culture that ties excuse me that ties masculinity to a man's strength and independence you may have seen compassion and understanding as weakness you may have seen men gain respect and admiration for their self-reliance You may have experienced immense pressure to maintain this kind of image as a man. But Peter is saying cultivate humility instead of self-reliance. Service instead of independence. These are the things that God values in a man. There's also a push in our culture for a healthier kind of masculinity. There's a lot to commend there. But what I find interesting is the foundation that it's built on. Our culture's highest value is individual autonomy. The highest good, therefore, is to keep from infringing on others' autonomy and to protect your own. Marriage can become, you do you, I'll do me, and let's just hope this works out. Husbands no longer try and dominate their wives, which is good. But Peter calls us to something more. He calls us to neither place ourselves over our wives or even next to our wives. He calls us to place ourselves under our wives in self-sacrificial service. This expresses our hope in Christ in two ways. First, it shows that we recognize the image of God in our wives. Not only that, but if they are believers, that they are heirs with us in Christ on equal footing before God, our identities in Christ supersede all others. Second, it shows us that it shows that we know that we will give an account to God for how we have treated them. We have our eyes set on eternity. If we puff ourselves up, if we elevate ourselves above her, if we take advantage of her, then we will have to answer to God for why we have degraded someone made in his image and bought with his own blood. Even in the present, Peter says that to mistreat our wives will actually hinder our prayers. If you do not treat your wife the way that God intends, It disrupts your relationship with God. So husbands are to courageously do good by self-sacrificially using all of their strength to serve their wives with respect and understanding. So what does Peter have to say to wives? For many of us, our eyes probably go most quickly to the word submit or be subject. These are important words and we will talk about them. But here's how I would summarize Peter's message to wives as a whole. Wives are to courageously do good by willingly allowing their husbands to lead while carrying themselves in a way that is respectful, godly, self-controlled, and wise. He uses two sets of words, the first to describe conduct and the second to describe character. Peter exhorts wives to be respectful and pure in their conduct. Respect carries the same kind of meaning that we would expect in English. It means to be deferential, to honor the other person. If we show respect to someone, we are not derisive or mean-spirited. We don't cut them down or treat them as less than us. For some of us, purity can call to mind a kind of passive serenity, like paintings of the Virgin Mary. But this is really just to be righteous or godly in your behavior. This is important because people can be really difficult. Marriage lets you see each other's difficultness up close and personal. Conflict is inevitable, but it, be, it, it can become especially sharp if you do not share the same fundamental values. This is what some of the women in Peter's first century audience faced. Though they loved Jesus, their husbands did not. Their husbands did not obey the word. They did not believe the gospel. They did not care to be the kind of men that God describes in his word. Jesus was not their Lord. I do want to be careful here. I am not saying that all non-Christians, non-Christian husbands are bad husbands. There are many compassionate, kind, and respectful husbands who do not follow Jesus. But, he would, but a non-Christian husband would not be trying to serve his Christian wife way that she would be trying to serve him. These wives probably longed for their husbands to find redemption and hope in Jesus as well. You may know the kind of discouragement that this could bring. It's easy to return sin for sin. It's easy to give up. It's easy to feel like your perseverance doesn't matter. But Peter's concern for wives, just as with every Christian, is that they do not return sin for sin or evil for evil. It does not honor God, and it does not help your situation. Instead, he says, maintain respectful and righteous behavior toward your husband. If your hope is in Christ, then you can know that your perseverance is not pointless. Peter says, even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Peter is saying God sees you. He recognizes your faithfulness. Scripture tells us that he will reward you for it in eternity. Peter says here that he may even use it in the present to work change in your husband. This does not mean that you are in any way responsible for your husband's change or salvation. Only God causes the growth. Do not judge your own faithfulness by your husband's response this also means that you are this also does not mean that you are not allowed to use words with your husband you should use words to share the gospel you should use words to confront harmful or sinful behavior but your perseverance can plant or water a gospel seed where words may not seem to get through Next, Peter exhorts wives to cultivate a gentle and quiet spirit. These words probably also set off some alarm bells in your head. God has gifted many women with extroverted personalities and direct communication styles. These words are not meant to say otherwise. The word gentle here is very much like the word meek. It means power under control. This is the same kind of gentleness commanded of all believers in the fruit of the spirit. It's the attitude in which we are to restore those caught in sin in Galatians 6 and correct opponents in 2 Timothy 2. In 1 Timothy, Paul exhorts his protege to gentleness right before he also tells him to fight the good fight of faith. Gentleness is not passive. It's also the same word that Jesus uses when he says that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Now remember, this is Jesus who called the Pharisees a brood of vipers, who turned over tables in the temple, who is our coming, conquering king, who makes his enemies his footstool. Gentleness does not mean weak. Gentleness means humble. It means self-controlled. The word quiet may immediately translate to silence in our heads. The fact that he's, des- that, that he's not describing behavior, but he's describing character, should tip us off that something else is going on here. He is not saying that godly women cannot be passionate, extroverted, boisterous. To be quiet is to have a kind of settledness that does not stir up needless or destructive conflict. Paul also uses this word in First Timothy to describe how he wants the church to live within an unbelieving culture. Now, Peter contrasts these words, gentle and quiet, with external beauty. He says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I think that we would all recognize that women tend to care more about their physical beauty than men do. There are certainly exceptions, but this has been true broadly in every culture that we are aware of throughout history. It was true among the first century exiles. It's true today. It would be easy to conclude from this verse that this is a sinful tendency. It's easy to conclude that it is ungodly, to own new clothes or nice jewelry. But I think that Peter's focus is bigger than that. I think that if we make this verse about clothing, we actually miss the point that Peter is making. He is not as concerned with what you wear as much as what you value. This becomes clearer when we consider three points of comparison in this verse. Peter is concerned that wives adorn themselves with godly character, rather than external beauty with what is eternal rather than what is temporary and with what god finds precious rather than what the world or even their husband may find precious here's why this is important unfortunately many women tie their worth to to their physical appearance they may feel pressured to keep up with the latest trends in order to continually prove their femininity they may experience a lack of attention or importance when they do not maintain their appearance. Many women even experience this from their own husbands. They feel that they have to chase his affections, that they must dress or look a certain way to maintain their worth in his sight. Peter is tearing all of this down. Wives cannot control the expectations of their husbands or their culture, but they can choose where to place their hope and where they will find their value and their validation. If your hope is in Jesus, then know that you have value simply because God created you in his image. Know that God sees you. Know that God recognizes your faithfulness, even when you feel ignored, abandoned, or overlooked. Invest in eternity, even when the demands of our culture seem so much more present and real. Whether you care about physical beauty or not, Peter urges you to invest in what will last forever. If you enjoy clothes, jewelry, and hairstyles, that's fine. But don't let it consume you. It's here today and gone tomorrow. So taking in all four of these characteristics, respectful, pure, gentle, quiet, the picture here is not of a wife who walks on eggshells, who avoids rocking the boat, Who chases her husband's every whim, who has no desires or identity of her own. It is of a wife who treats her husband with honor, who pursues righteousness, who exercises strength with humility, who has convictions but does not stir up needless conflict, who knows who she is in Christ. Knowing this, I hope that it's clear that you have full freedom to confront sinful behavior. This includes emotionally, physically, and mentally harmful behavior. It is not stirring up conflict to tell your husband how his sinful or harmful actions may impact you. It is not disrespectful to require accountability for genuine change. It is not impure to bring others in for help, whether it's friends, family, social workers, church elders, or even the police especially if change never seems to stick. It is not harsh to set out reasonable consequences for continued harmful behavior. Taking concrete action in response to sinful or harmful behavior is actually the most respectful, pure, gentle, quiet thing that you can do. It is respectful because it shows that you believe that they are capable of better. It is pure because it is responding to sin with truth. To do nothing may only enable the sinful and harmful behavior. It is gentle because it takes strength under control to do it effectively. It is quiet because it takes a subtleness about who you are and what is right. If conflict results from respectful, pure, gentle, and quiet confrontation, then it is a necessary conflict. It is not needless. If these four words or others like them are being used to keep you isolated or silent, there is something wrong. I would argue that a right understanding of these four words gives us a pretty good description of what submission looks like in a marital context. It's not unconditional. It's not robbing the woman of agency or identity. It's about honor, righteousness, humility, and self-control. So with this in mind, let's take a closer look at biblical marital submission. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And then in verse six, I th- verse 5 and 6, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. As we said before, The word likewise here indicates for wives what it does for husbands. They are to serve one another faithfully by doing good, not returning evil for evil with their hope fixed on Jesus. So what does it mean to be subject or submit? First, we should note that scripture does teach that God gave a certain order to the husband-wife relationship. This is most clearly laid out in Ephesians 5. God calls all believers, including husbands and wives, to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Within that framework, God assigns husbands a measure of authority within the relationship. We already saw that husbands should exercise this leadership through radical, self-sacrificial service. It must never be authoritarian. It must never be used to take advantage. It is not because of any inherent deficiency in, in women, or inherent superiority in men. With that being said, it is our responsibility to properly understand what submission means. It is very easy to expand its meaning and application in ways that are not biblically warranted. First of all, no Christian is ever required to submit to anyone in a way that would cause them to sin. This is true for wives as well. Second, The Greek word here is hypotasso. It indicates a voluntary submission. It's the same word that is used in Ephesians 5.21 that I quoted a moment ago, when we are all told to submit to one another. A wife's submission is an extension of the mutual submission that we show each other. And we would never take our submission to each other to mean that we have to say yes to everything that we're asked to do. This is true for wives as well. He does not have to say yes to her husband's every whim just because it may not be sinful. Third, the word Lord is a term of uh, respect common to the ancient Near Eastern cultural context. Sarah addressed Abraham this way in Genesis 18. Her obedience to Abraham was to follow God's leading through Abraham. She faithfully stayed with him as God led them all over the map and this would have taken a lot of courage on her part. Fourth, I find it noteworthy that a husband is never told to command his wife. He is never instructed to compel obedience. This indicates to me that a wife's submission isn't about obeying commands. These are important distinctions. This phrase, submission, or be subject, and others like it, have led many men to assume a tyrannical kind of leadership in their home. They demand submission and obedience from their wives, but this is completely and totally absolutely unbiblical. A husband's headship is not defined by his wife's submission. Women, if you feel like your husband treats you like a subject or a servant, if you feel like you cannot make a move without his permission, if you run every thought through the filter of what his reaction will be, then there is something wrong. I want you to know once again, that godly submission does not mean that you cannot confront sinful or harmful behavior. It does not mean that you put up with however your husband treats you. You are fully permitted to take every advantage or every legal and godly advantage at your disposal to address harmful behavior and sinful behavior and to take appropriate action. With all of this in mind, the best definition that I can come up with that captures all of these nuances of biblical submission is willingly allowing and even encouraging your husband to lead you and your family well. The way that this plays out in each family is different. And if you or your husband would like help thinking through what that may look like for you and your relationship, then we and other church leaders would be happy to talk through that. So we've covered a lot of information this morning. We approached this passage in an upside-down way. We broke it apart to look at its individual pieces. My hope is that you can now read this picture better when you flip it right side up. I hope you were able to see how the individual pieces relate to the whole picture. If I were to boil it all down to a few key phrases, here's what I would want you to take away. Peter wants all believers to courageously do good, no matter our circumstances, with their hope fixed on Jesus. Husbands courageously do good by self-sacrificially using all of their strengths to serve their wives with respect and genuine understanding as fellow image bearers and equal heirs with Christ. Wives courageously do good by willingly allowing their husbands to lead while persevering in godly conduct and cultivating godly character, knowing that God sees and recognizes their faithfulness. At several points, I have described possible harmful dynamics that can exist in intimate relationships. Statistically, one in three women within the church have or will experience those behaviors or attitudes from their husbands. Though it is less common, husbands may also experience similar behaviors from their wives. If any of those descriptions resonated with you, please know that you are not alone. We love you. We want to help you figure out what your godly response should be. It is never sinful to ask for help. Come talk to me, to my wife, Evan, Pastor Gary, or Tracy. If you recognize any of those harmful dynamics within yourself, and you want to work on those, you want to change, we also want to help you figure that out. We love you too. It is not shameful or weak to ask for help. No matter where your relationship is right now, be proactive. Find, uh, sorry, read books, listen to podcasts, attend conferences, let other people in. Single, dating, married, older, younger. We learn so much simply by seeing how others do things. What is one way that you could be more godly toward your husband or your wife, your boyfriend or your girlfriend? Or if you're single, what is one way that you can be more godly toward the people that you care about the most. And then what makes, in your mind, a man masculine or a woman feminine? And how do those relate and compare to what God values?